is one thing more than signs, more than wonders, more than earthquakes, more than volcanoes and wildfires, more than AI technology, and more than travel. There is one thing that God put in the Bible knowing the whole world would say it was impossible. God wanted something so impossible to happen that the whole world would know that he was God and God alone. So he filled the Bible with prophecy about a tiny little nation that is smaller than the state of Connecticut. He filled the Bible about this tiny little nation and said something that seemed preposterous. In the end of time, all of the world will be focused on this little nation. Now, what are the chances of that? What are the chances of the whole world focused on this little sliver of land that was a desert for so long? What are the chances that any of that could happen? And so here's what did happen. John writes about it. Jesus speaks about it. And then in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. 10,000 Jewish people are killed, the rest of them expelled, and by 135 AD, not a single Jewish person lived in Israel. By 135 AD, Israel was unoccupied. For 623 years, it was occupied by the Ottoman Empire. But even they left and Israel became a wasteland because Jesus said, or not Jesus, but the prophet said that Israel would become a desert that would be inhabited only by jackals and rabbits. That only wild animals and weeds would live there. By 1935, Israel was no more, gone. Not just gone, it looked like it was gone forever. 700, 700 generations lived and died without seeing Israel. You gotta let that sink in. 700 generations lived and died reading the Bible, but there was no Israel. There was no Mount Zion. There was no Israel to go to. Because of the Bible, a famous writer that many of you would recognize his name, Mark Twain. May I remember the name Mark Twain? Mark Twain visits Israel in 1867. This is what he writes about his visit to Israel. He wanted to go there because of reading about it in the Bible. Here is his conclusion, and this is what he puts in print, a quote from Mark, Mark Twain. This is a desolate land overtaken by weeds and silence. We never saw one human being on our entire route. Even the olive trees and the cactus have all but deserted this worthless desert. 
1867. He sees that and writes that. Not one single human being in this wasteland, and most of ancient Israel by that time was covered in sand dunes. You didn't even know there was a city there because the sands had filled them up. It just looked like desert. You couldn't find the old cities. All of that had to be excavated later. So what are the chances? God, are you going to do something so incredible, so spectacular, so miraculous, so supernatural that the whole world will believe you? That's sure what it sounds like. But has the whole world believed him? Look at what, look at what Zephaniah said. Listen to this. Impossible, guys. 2,000 years there has been no Israel. 700 generations living and dying no Israel, no one living there, no one occupying the land, and for 2,000 years, no Jewish people have been brought together, scattered, diaspora, scattered throughout the earth. But here's a prophecy, Zephaniah 3. For then I will restore the people to a pure language, and they may all be, may call on the name of the Lord to serve him in one accord. What is the possibility of after 2,000 years an ancient language from years ago to be alive again? That has never happened in the history of the world. It looks like the Bible is wrong. It looks like Zephaniah was having a bad day because what is the possibility? And Zephaniah wasn't the only one. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring them back from their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice, O mount of holiness. How is it possible that after 2,000 years and 700 generations, is there any way in the world that Israel could even exist much less speak an ancient language. God doesn't stop there. He says in Isaiah 66 and 8, shall the earth be made to give birth in a day? Wait a minute. God says, I'm not just going to bring them back. I'm going to do it in one day. Can the earth give birth in a day or shall a nation be born at once? For as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. In other words, one in one day, I will restore Israel. I will bring them back from captivity and they will still be speaking Hebrew. And in May 14, 1948, the world witnessed a miracle. The world witnessed something. Some of you were alive during that time. You remember what happened in May 14, 1948. They came walking. They came riding camels. They came riding on mules and carts. They came from boats. They came from countries. Seventy different countries gave up their Jews. Think about it. 
70 different countries gave up their Jewish population and they migrated back to this old, broken down ruin of a city. And when they all got together, they realized that even though they had never met their ancestry, all of them still spoke Hebrew and all of them still kept the feast and all of them still worshiped God and all of them kept reading the Torah and all of them longed for Zion after 2,000 years and 700 generations. What is the possibility that this is even possible? But here it is, the apple of God's eye. Here it is. God has performed a miracle on the earth because he said, Israel is my time clock. He said, Israel is my time clock. And what I do in Israel is the ultimate proof that Jesus is coming. Watch the scales of the volcanoes. Watch the scales of the earthquakes. Watch the scales of the, of the wildfires. Watch the scales of the hurricanes. Watch all of the signs of the time. Go ahead and look up the scales of men's hearts fell in them for fear. Look at all the signs of the time. Go read Daniel. Has knowledge increased? Yes. Has, has, uh, has travel increased? Absolutely. But here's what he said. None of this will measure it like the existence of Israel. Because I'm going to put Israel in a position that Israel will become hated by all nations. I will put this tiny little sliver of land, this little bitty parcel of land that's only 85 miles wide. I'll put this little piece of land in a strategic place that the focus of the world, what are the chances? Come on, what's the law of probability for that? That the whole world would be focused on Israel at the time of the coming of the Lord. Israel is a time clock. The Bible says it will be the focus. So here is the question that many people are asking now. Does this current war in any way relate to Bible prophecy? What's going on in Israel now? Does it relate to Bible prophecy? So I'm going to show you by what's going on in Israel one more evidence that shows that we are closing the door to the time of the Lord. At any time in Israel's history that they have existed, Israel has been persecuted or at war. Whether it's the Egyptians, the Babylonians, whether it was the Assyrians, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, or the Romans, Israel has always been persecuted because Satan hates the fact. Satan knows if he can wipe out Israel, he can wipe out the Bible. If he, can, if he can disprove the Bible, then Jesus was just another man, and heaven is not real, and God has failed in his plan on this earth. So Satan hates Israel because Israel is the, is the proof that the Bible is real. So Satan has set his agenda against Israel. So there is a battle that a lot of people are speculating about, 
and I can tell you, first of all, this is not that battle. Okay, so you need to know this up front. This is not that battle. Could this lead to that battle? And the answer is possibly yes. So understand what I'm about to show you is this is not that battle, but this could be a prelude to that battle. It's a battle that Ezekiel describes as the battle of Gog-Magog. Now, I understand that when you say Gog-Magog, a lot of people just automatically check out, right? They just check out because they instantly realize that uh, they instantly realize that that um, that's over their head and they don't understand it. So I'm going to break this down real simple for you. Now I want to, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at this map first. So if you guys can follow me over here, I want to point at this map. First of all, I want you to notice in the beginning, in the middle there is Jerusalem, where the little star is. That's Jerusalem. So Gog is a person, Magog is a land, all right? Gog is a man, Magog is a land. And they don't go together, by the way. Gog is identifying a person the Bible calls the king of the north that lives in a country north of Israel by the ancient name of Rosh that that is the king of the north that will come down to invade Israel, and the Bible says to take booty, which doesn't mean the same thing that it means now. It means to take money, all right? So they're coming to Israel. I gotta, I gotta keep you awake somehow. This is Bible prophecy, right? So, so um, they're coming to actually take their goods, steal their, steal their land, and take things from them. So understand this. So. The battle of Gog Magog is about a man who's going to ally with a group of people and with this group of people, they are going to invade Israel together. Now Magog is this whole area that you see in yellow. Now why is this Magog? You can see that all of this is Muslim territory. Magog basically is the name of one of the sons of Japheth Okay, remember, Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth. Japheth has a son named Magog. Magog has sons of his own who are named all of those ancient names, Tubal, Put. You'll see all of those in just a minute, all those names. So he's giving you a territory. He's describing a land in the Bible and to make it easy for you, that's the land, okay? So hopefully you don't have to get stuck in the words tonight because this is the land. What I'm showing you here is the king of Rosh will come down to invade Israel and be allied with all of these countries you see here. Israel will be surrounded by its enemies. So this is an Islamic invasion with a northern ally. You get that. It is an Islamic invasion with a northern ally coming to wipe out Israel. Thank you so much for supporting our ministry. If this has blessed you, please say a prayer for us. And if you would like to give, we have four ways that you can do that. You can give online at briancutshaw.com or if you're a PayPal user, just PayPal us at Church Trainer. Or you can also give through the mail at P.O. Box 267, Georgetown, Tennessee, 37336. 
or if you're a Venmo user, you can Venmo us also at Church Trainer. Thank you and God bless you and may the Lord multiply your seed. Now back to Hope in the Word. Now the Bible tells us that this man, this aggressive leader from Rosh, is from the land of the north. And it uses the word Rosh, which many believe is a reference to Russia. Many believe that because it's the reference to Russia that it's the leader of Russia that would take the seat of Gog. Many would say that's a madman in that seat. Many would say that he would do anything to revive his empire again. Many would say he's going broke and he would do anything to get money. So there's a lot of information out there about this person the Bible describes as the king of the north. Let me move on. So what is the, God, what is the battle of Gog Magog? Now, this is going to be a hit and run. I don't have time to explain it all. I just want to read it to you so you won't get completely lost. Now, I'm going to show you a different map. So go to the next one where I start reading out of the book of Ezekiel. This is a different map. I want you to find Russia there because when I say these names, notice the land of Magog is in southern Russia. Notice Meshach. Southern Russia, all of this is in the land of Russia. And then these other nations that are gonna hear, Cush, Put, Gomer, all of this you can see that these are in these other territories. Persia, all of these. All right, so here's what this, the Bible says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. You see that? The land of Russia. Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. You can see all of that up there. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will, go ahead to the next one. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde large with small shields. And understand this, this is the language he had to use because we're, we're getting this from the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's never seen a tank or a helicopter. So he's only seen that type of warfare. He says, Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them. Now see that down there, Persia, Put? These are these Muslim countries that surround. They will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all of its truth, Togomara uh, uh, from the far north with all of its troops and the many nations with you. Go to the next one, if you will. And this is what he continues to say. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days, you will call to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that, get this, you will invade a land that has recovered from war whose people are gathered from many nations to the house of Israel. This is Israel, to the mountains of Israel, which have long been desolate. Does any of that ring a bell from what we've already talked about tonight? They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them are living in safety. They've got an iron dome. They've got all kinds of things that protect them. Now listen to what he says. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. Notice, these thoughts are gonna come into his mind. These thoughts are coming from the Lord. These thoughts will come into your mind. He says, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people and all of them living without walls and without gates and without bars. And that is what he says. Now, now notice this. When he gets there, I'm going to stop there, but I want you to understand that's the gist of that. Now, I can go on and describe how the invasion takes place. He actually tells you what countries they're coming through, and you can actually draw a map of how this warfare is going to play out. But I want to just move on to the end. Because when you get to the end of this story, this is what you need to understand. God says, now you've done everything you can do. You have brought all these Muslim nations against this tiny little country, and now I'm going to show you that I am God. And God calls for his army. God fights with Israel. And I want you to see what God's army looks like. God's army does not look like their army. God's army does not look like tanks, and it doesn't look like bombs, and it doesn't look like planes and helicopters and machine guns. God says, I'm going to call for the earth, and it's going to open wide and swallow you up like it did in the days of Korah. I'm going to call for the fire. I'm going to let a volcano explode, and it's going to rain down fire on top of your heads and destroy you. I'm going to call for the sea, and the sea is going to swirl and there's going to be a tidal wave come and your armies will be drowned in it. I'm going to call for the tornadoes and they're going to sweep. You can't shoot a gun at them. You can't fire a tank at them. You can't fly a plane into them. God said, when I call for my armies, they will utterly destroy you. God says, I'm going to call for the hell and the hell will fall so large that it will break cars in two. He's going to call for hell that is the largest the largest weights of hell that we've ever measured on the earth. And God says, when my army gets through, all of the nations will know that there is a God in Israel who protects Israel and fights with Israel. So for those of you that are worried about the battle of Gog, Magog, don't worry. God's got it. He's going to take care of it. It may look bad, but here, here's something you need to understand. How do we know that this war could be a possible setup for that battle? Could what we're seeing now be a prelude? Here's what we know. I'm going to tell you two things that I think proves that it actually is. First of all, we know that Hamas receives its military training from Iran, Turkey, and Russia. That we know. We know that they supply them with their materials. All three of those are the primary nations that invade Israel during the War of Gog Magog. What we also know is sadly so, our government has sent billions of dollars to these same nations that has allowed them to fund a lot of this destruction that we're seeing. And I'm just gonna say this one thing. We need to pray that God will give us a government that stands with Israel. 
We need to pray that God will give us leaders that will stand with Israel because God said, if you bless Israel, I will bless you. But if you curse Israel, I will curse you. And my prayer for the United States is revival. But God, please let us stand with Israel because you will fight with Israel and you will stand with Israel. And I can't speak for the whole nation, but I'll tell you this tonight with unashamedness that as for me and my house, I stand with Israel. I stand with Israel. I stand with Israel. And I believe that God will fight for them. And what's interesting is this. The word Hamas is a Palestinian acronym for Islamic resistant movement. Now we don't... We say that in English, the words in, in, um, in Arabic actually spell out that acronym. But that's not the only time that word is mentioned. It's not a modern word. As a matter of fact, it's an ancient word. In the Hebrew Bible, the word Hamas is there. I want to show you a passage, and I want you to look at this. Genesis chapter 6, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in, the, in God's sight and was full of violence. That word violence in Hebrew is the word Hamas. All right? So violence in Hebrew is the word Hamas. This was why God, and look at what that word means. This is the Hebrew translation of that. Violence, cruel, damage, false, injustice, and oppression. God destroyed the earth in the time of Noah because of Hamas. Hamas is not just an organization. Hamas is a demonic force that has been at work trying to wipe out the people of God from the very beginning of time. It's not the only time this word is used. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, many times it's used. Jeremiah uses the word to describe the invasion of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, because they came in using Hamas, they came in using violence to attack the people of Israel. It is a demonic stronghold that uses violence to destroy the works of the Lord. That, that is the first time the word appears in the Bible. It happened in the days of Noah when God destroyed the earth. What does the Bible say? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. God directly ties these two events together with that word, Hamas. In order for Gog and Magog, though, to happen, in order for any of this to happen, there's another seemingly impossibility that has to take place. When you talk about things like this, you say the Bible says this, people that just laugh at you because it's like, how can Israel be a nation after 2,000 years? How can they speak Hebrew after all of that time? So here's another one that the Bible says. I'm, I'm coming to an end here, so stick with me a few more moments. Are you, are you getting this tonight? Are you enjoying this? All right, so in order for this to happen, another geographical phenomenon that seems utterly impossible has to happen. For as long as we have had time, as long as there has been time, the largest rivers in the world have been the Nile, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. I mean, they're there in this creation story. They're there at the very beginning when God created the earth. 
but just to show that God wants to prove he's there, he says, I'm gonna dry up one of those big rivers and I'm gonna let an army from the east march across the dry riverbed. And he said, the one I'm gonna dry up is the Euphrates River. Now I want you to look at this. The book of Revelation, and the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings from the east may be prepared. And then he says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest they were naked and they see his shame. Now notice this. This is what the Euphrates River has always looked like. This is what the Euphrates River looks like now. Now what's interesting to me about this particular picture of the Euphrates River is not just that it's smaller and that it's drying up and it's almost gone, not just that, but also I want you to notice something else. He says in the book of Revelation where he writes this, he continues to write in verse 22, he says, and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. And I want you to notice something on this screen. When the river Euphrates dried up, I want you to look to the right. Does anyone see the omega symbol in the river? Alpha beginning, omega the end. This means when this river dries up, I signed my name that you are at the end. You are in the omega season of the coming of the Lord. Did you get that? You're in the omega season. And just so you don't miss it, that is the uppercase omega. That is the lowercase omega. If you see that uppercase omega, look right to the left, and God wrote it twice. He said, just in case you miss it, I'm gonna put the lowercase omega right next to the uppercase omega because when this river dries up, I want you to see my name on this river letting you know you're not just coming near the end of the Lord, you're at the end of the end. The omega season is upon you and you're about to see Jesus Christ come as he promised to his church. What does that mean for us? Dr. B, that's a scary sermon. I hope so. I hope it wakes you up a little bit if you've not been. It's time. It's past time now. The day's almost here. The night's almost in it. It's past time that we wake up out of our sleep. It's past time. If you're not living for the Lord, I hope you wake up tonight. If you're playing around, I hope you wake up tonight. If you're messing around with lust or anything, I hope you I hope you wake up tonight. If you're messing around playing around with God, I hope you wake up tonight. Because we're almost there. Malachi says, and I come to a close, I want the musicians to come. Malachi said, surely the day is coming and I will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You know what he's telling us? The Lord is saying, I understand that the world is reeling and rocking, but I have a plan for my church. I'm gonna send my church out in revival. I'm gonna send my church out blessed. Son of righteousness, yes, the Antichrist is rising, but he's not the only one rising. The Son of righteousness is rising with healing in his wings. These are days of healing. These are days of miracle, and we need to expect the greatest moves of God that we've seen in our lifetime. 
This program is brought to you by the partners of Brian Cutshaw and Church Trainer Ministries. Please help us pray that the Lord will continue to send us more partners so we can expand his kingdom around the world.